0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space.
1: It's a tough, tough teacher, but you get some of your best lessons from failing and having to face that, having to face it. That's that's hard, but that is a good thing. And sometimes it, it brings you to the thing that you're supposed to do. If, if our newspaper business, we hadn't had to close it, then maybe I'd never... Be doing this with hidden figures, which I consider to be the the best work of my life. So you know, you have to you have to really understand the failures through the the teaching that they give you and have the guts because it does take guts because it hurts to look in the mirror like that. but have have that fortitude to look at it and accept it and thank it for what it's it's giving you.
0: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. How many people in your everyday world do you think might have blockbuster film stories lurking within them? Margot Lee Shetterly was well into a writing and publishing career when a chance conversation between her husband and her father revealed that she had unknowingly grown up right in the middle of a grand tale the untold story of the African-American women who served as NASA quote-unquote computers back in the early 1960s. Luckily for her, several of those women were still alive and willing to tell her their story, which became the book and blockbuster movie Hidden Figures. A few like I am always intrigued by the story behind a great production like Hidden Figures, You'll love the insights she shares with us about her journey into the early years of the space program and the insights she took from the lives of these remarkable women. By the way, in the spirit of true confessions, you'll notice the sound quality in this episode isn't up to our usual standards. There was an audio issue on my end when I talked to Margot, so I appreciate your understanding and indulgence this one time. I know the tale is worth it. Nicole Lee, what a delight to have time to actually chat with you and not just run in and out of advisory board meetings together.
1: Yeah, Kathy, thanks so much. I'm I'm glad we were finally able to make this happen.
0: Yeah, likewise, likewise. You know, I've had fun looking into your background a little bit and because I've, like countless people, I'm sure, was mesmerized by Hidden Figures, the movie and the book, and couldn't help but kind of wonder what's that full backstory of how you happened on this idea and learned about these figures and got inspired to write the story, but didn't take much digging around, In fact, to discover you actually grew up in the area where NASA's Langley Research Center is and where the whole story is centered. Tell me about being a youngster in, in Hampton back in the early 70s. Sure.
1: Well, the deep backstory is that my dad, who is now retired, worked his entire career at NASA Langley in Hampton, Virginia, as an atmospheric research scientist. And so as a consequence of that, and as a consequence of growing up in the Hampton Roads area, which is, still is, but certainly in the most of the 20th century, particularly mid-century, 50s, 60s, 70s, was one of the concentrations of defense industry in the country and in the world. I mean, you know, the Air Force Base, there was NASA. The Navy's
0: largest and most important base is there
1: absolutely Fort Eustace, just basically every aspect of 20th century defense industry had some kind of a footprint there in the Hampton Roads area. So as a consequence, we grew up with a lot of people who were engineers, scientists, technically skilled in some way, worked for the shipyards, worked for the military. And it just seemed completely normal, including the fact that a lot of people like my dad, and um, like the women that I wrote about, spent their time thinking about space or thinking about science and the atmosphere, thinking about what it would take for a supersonic aircraft to fly. All of that stuff seemed totally normal to me yeah. uh, growing up as a kid. So it, it was really fortunate. And, you know, as as part of that, we got to know some of the astronauts, including our fellow board member at Terra Alpha, Charlie Bolden. Yeah, and uh, Leland Melvin, another one who used to play basketball with my dad at the national, <laughs> oh, really? yeah, the, the NASA Basketball Association. My siblings and I would go and watch him play basketball, <laughs> and tell people that our dad was in the NBA, uh, but it was for the <laughs> NASA Basketball Association, not the
0: National Basketball. Association. Oh, there you go. Yeah, because a lot of people don't know if you look at the early history of NASA. You know, it it didn't start at Na- as NASA. It started as a collection of Existing entities that were cobbled together, and eventually in 1958 became the thing we know as NASA. But its first physical base was actually at what now is NASA Langley, but it was in Langley, Virginia, to start with. Before it moved down to even the manned spaceflight stuff was at Langley first, yes. Before it moved down to Houston,
1: correct? Yeah, it was the original, not just space center, but the original aeronautics center. That's what it was yeah. really founded for, out of World War One. Uh, with the idea of giving a boost, literally and figuratively, to the American aer- aeronautics industry.
0: Yeah, yeah. NACA was also based there. Yes. And and Langley still does a lot of aeronautics work. I mean, if you own big airplanes or you're running an airline, you're really relying on the researchers at Langley even today to dig into can you really make sustainable aviation fuel could you really make airplanes lighter you know how could you make them go faster can you do a supersonic without a sonic boom a lot of that work is still done today at Langley
1: yeah it's really exciting um you know a lot of people didn't know about that we kind of did growing up there you know living there um yeah. but took it for granted and and so doing the research for this book was a real just exercise in how interesting um, and how much of the of that 20th century aeronautics and space work was happening 15 minutes drive from my house.
0: Yeah, were you the science interested kid? I mean, your your college and professional career has certainly been in other directions, but you know, with an atmospheric scientist dad and an English professor mom, I, what were your dinner table conversations like at home?
1: You know, fortunately, I think I got the best of both of their interests. And, you know, my dad certainly tried to make scientists out of all his kids. And we, you know, we took all the calculus, we took all of the whatever the most advanced science, you know, physics, whatever it was, right in the schools we took, and um, he did get one scientist, my sister, Jocelyn, is a cancer researcher. How many of you are there uh, there are four of us um, I have a okay. brother and two sisters and uh, my other sister actually worked f- until recently at Twitter so um, oh wow yeah and and had social media meet- started out as an architect and then kind of went into technology so so we we were always very kind of technology friendly and uh my dad was a you know, a big science booster really saw the value in it as as an intrinsically interesting field, and also a field where there were always job opportunities. That was something that was that was always very clear. If you had an engineering degree or science degree, then uh, certainly you could expect to find a good job.
0: Yeah. Were you gravitating towards any particular fields in, like, by high school time that uh, you went to University of Virginia in a uh, a business, a commerce? track when you eventually got to college. But what was your awareness of your interest and your talents in those young years? And and maybe any notable influences, events, or people that sort of caught your attention and said, oh, yeah, I think I want to be like that or do that?
1: You know, I had a very strong interest from a very young age in business and the stock market. And um, you know, financial markets and just, you know, for whatever reason, it it just, that was always something that, that kind of captivated me from Hmm. being, you know, like nine years old, basically, which is sort of strange. So that's actually what I studied when I went to college. But of course, if you have that rigorous mathematics, if you have that analytical framework, if you have all of those skills, they're extremely transferable to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah and uh you know a lot of a lot of financial companies obviously recruit people specifically with those engineering and science degrees well,
0: it's also the, the ability to observe astutely you know think critically about the relative merits of different pieces of data or evidence that you're getting and you know draw worthwhile conclusions that you can act on so all that logic and reasoning i mean you ended up in investment banking at least for a while you're you're assessing the prospects of companies. How yeah, do you tease apart what's in their fancy marketing brochure from what maybe their reality is, which might be just a little less rosy than the marketing brochure?
1: Yeah, and, and doing financial instruments, which is really what I was doing was financial markets, um, fixed income uh, securities, derivatives, that kind of thing. It was a lot of financial modeling. So I know my way around an Excel spreadsheet very, very well. i bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> but you know all those all that math and science stuff comes in handy and i think if you know not just the practical hands-on aspect but the lack of fear and the appreciation for for what science and what math bring to the table
0: yeah it's really a crippling limitation in my view if you're afraid of science in this world of ours today you know 21st century highly tech every society is certainly every Western society, is very highly technical in its communications, its economy, stuff you might not think about, but stuff that's shaping and enabling your own life. Correct. I I could not agree with you more. So off you went to New York after college, and you did a stint in investment banking, but also some variety of startups. Tell Tell me about those New York years.
1: Yeah, you know, I guess there's a part of me that still feels like a the new yorker I transplant <laughs> anyway <laughs> that I was for many years and I worked at JP Morgan that was my first job out of college doing foreign exchange trading dollar swiss I worked in fixed income capital markets at Merrill Lynch and then I I made the transition from there to internet startups which was you know wow. was silicon alley at the time I don't know if anyone even remembers that yes. term anymore but
0: Blast from the past. Yeah, real blast from the
1: past. And, uh, you know, this sort of nascent internet slash content creation business that was uh, stirring a burble up in New York City, very closely tied to the media industry, obviously new media. And so worked worked there, did a couple of um, sort of consulting freelance, you know, kind of things and uh, ended up at HBO. At a startup that was in HBO, worked there from the very beginning. I think it was like employee number eight. And worked there until it was closed, which was right after 9-11. Uh, but that was that was a really interesting stint. Just met so many amazing people, uh, some of whom are still very close friends today. And a great experience to be at the very beginning of a company.
0: Imagine. And you
1: see it through to its whatever its natural fruition. In this case, it wasn't to... Become a you know a huge giant company, but even though it was inside of a huge giant company, then you know took some time off, came back to New York, worked at another startup business, a technology startup, in downtown New York, met my husband, and then the two of us got married and moved
0: to Mexico. That okay, is okay. Wait, Mexico. we're we're going to dive deeply into Mexico, but I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to let you out of New York quite just yet. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Unpack for me a little bit. You said your your first job was in foreign exchange trading. Correct. Uh, I know you know, a micro thimbleful about foreign exchange trading, and some people would consider that a lot. Like simple plain English for dummy astronauts, what is that about? How does it work? What are you doing in foreign exchange trading?
1: Yeah, you know what? I think I think a good way to think about it is like translation. If if I speak Spanish. And you speak French, then, you know, somehow we have to communicate with each other and we have an exchange of some sort, either, you know, we learn each other's languages or we have an interpreter that helps us to, to understand each other, even though we speak different languages. And so foreign exchange trading is like that. You know, I have dollars, you have Mexican pesos. I want to buy this in your country, or you want to buy this in my country well, if I'm sitting here in the middle of the United States, I'm not going to accept pesos because the dollar is the the currency here. So somehow along the line, if someone has pesos, they have to get dollars. And and the way they do that is it's like going on vacation. You know, you, yeah. you figure out how to get the local currency. So um, this was that, except at sort of the the very peak of the The market in which large banks and large financial institutions, large investors, private individuals exchange their dollars for uh, Swiss francs or at the time, German marks, of course, like euros, um, this sort of dating myself there.
0: Were they always doing that to buy some asset? Were they sometimes doing it, making a bet that the German mark will be more stable in the long run than my Mexican peso or... Absolutely, yeah. When I think of trading, I think of there's there's some differential between kind of sort of a kind of hedging. There's some differential between what I'm holding and what it's worth here or there, and so I'm going to try to find a way to take advantage of that difference.
1: Yeah, I think it, it, there were any number of reasons why people might do that. Maybe you have uh, you're trying to offset a certain risk that you have. You have assets in one currency, and you want to offset that risk. Maybe you are buying some huge machine from China and you need to have the money to pay for it. Or maybe you just think, Hey, listen, I think that this currency is overvalued. So I'm going to sell it and, you know, buy, buy, sell dollars and buy, you know, whatever. Interesting. Yeah. Pound sterling, whatever it is. The same reasons that, you know, you might, even if you were doing something just in dollars, you needed to buy something, sell something, invest something, you know, and this, in this instance, it was taking that to one other dimension, which is instead of just doing all that in one currency, in one country, it was doing it across currencies and across countries. Looking at the that landscape, yeah. we weren't doing that, obviously, but we were facilitating the transactions between the
0: people who were. Interesting. And then you said you stayed with your uh, startup within HBO. It shut down just after 9-11. Were you in the city on 9-11? I was. I was. Where, whereabouts? What was your day like?
1: I was I was actually at that point, I'd lived for quite a number of years in downtown Manhattan and Tribeca, had moved to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, when I was working at this um, HBO startup. And I, I got one of the last subway trains into the city, I still remember it very vividly, um, before the trains shut down that day, spent the day in the office, which was on, you know, basically at Astor Place, downtown New York, for those of you who know that geography. I will never forget that day. There was a small number of us who made it into the office. You know, it was a day of seeing the smoke from the window. You know, we could look downtown and, and just see the smoke coming from, you know, straight shot downtown, checking in with friends, checking in with parents, family to let them know we were Okay. How did you get home? Uh, you know what? I stayed in the city that night with friends. I remember that. yeah, that was that was an experience I will never forget and then in, in the city that I loved and and still love so much. Um, yeah, yeah, that was one of those play- things where you'll absolutely never forget the sights and the sounds and the smell of the burning. It was just, you know, a horrific experience.
0: The odor came all the way as far north as you were at Astor Place. Yeah, I remember it's just like the whole
1: city, that smell of it being on fire after. It was just, it was awful. It was, you know, it was really an awful, tragic, shocking, I mean, you know,
0: absolute world shattering shock. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, as the day goes on and you're still... Hearing and seeing and smelling all those things more and more,
1: and understanding, you know, the comes clearer and, and
0: clearer what happened and the, the horror of all of that comes through.
1: Yeah, no, it was it was horrible, and there were, you know, being in the financial industry, of course, yeah, made it even closer. There were there were two people that I knew not very well, but who were in the towers and and died that day.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Well, thank you for sharing. Not the happy day of your life, but one that deserves to be remembered.
1: And and part of that New York experience of having lived having lived through that in that city, in that time.
0: Mm, yeah. So what on earth took you to Mexico? You and your husband decamped to Mexico in like 2005-ish. We did. What was that
1: about? <laughs> it, was, it was a very interesting adventure, to say the least. My husband had a friend um actually a french journalist who had spent some time in mexico and who had worked at a small english language newspaper journal really in oaxaca in the south of mexico and said you know what this isn't this isn't really an amazing journal but there's something here this idea of an english language publication for expats principally but also for english speaking mexicans of of which there are Many, 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 yeah. obviously. Yeah. There's something here. There's something to this idea. And so when I met my husband, he had this idea. He's like, wow, it'd be such an interesting thing. We could go to Mexico and you know, start a magazine. And,
0: Is you know, he a and writer, so- a marketer?
1: What's Aaron's background? He was a writer. He had also worked in a startup company, and that's where we met. He had left this one startup in New York. This was after the HBO startup had down and i left and come back and worked at this company. It's where we met. And so he had that experience, but he'd also worked in publishing and he was working on a book at the time. So he had this variety of experiences and I, I didn't know anything about Mexico. I really didn't know anything about publishing as a business. And so I started looking into it, still very much sort of a business startup Sensibility yeah. coming out of all these startup businesses, and was like, "Huh, wow." There's, you know, they're saying that there's as many as a million Americans living fuller part time in Mexico. Huh. And this was back in mid two thousands. Most of them don't speak Spanish, but they love living there. They're buying houses. They they have all the needs of of any people living in a country to you know buy and sell things and and to get to know the place they're living. And we're like, wow, th- this could be a good business venture, maybe a magazine in English targeting these people, high quality editorial, but in-depth information about Mexico, which is an incredibly interesting country. Maybe that's a good business idea. So we essentially bought a car, got in it, drove <laughs> to Mexico and started a business. In Oaxaca? In, we started in Oaxaca, ended up in Mexico City which is a phenomenal city but i um, mean a huge sprawling just yeah, yeah. and so if is starting a business in your own language in your own country is a challenge under the the best of circumstances yeah. and so starting a business with your new spouse in a foreign country <laughs> in a different language that that you have to learn on the fly well that is a that is a whole order of magnitude more complex. And, and that's what we did.
0: That doesn't that violate the don't take on too many stressors at once rule? It does. It does. <laughs> we, we broke all those rules and threw them all out the window. Oh my gosh. And so how did that run? I mean, tell me more about that. It apparently was quite successful because you ran it for... Yeah, we
1: ran it for three. We ran it for about three. Three, and okay. It was a good product. It was a good idea. But there were a number of barriers. Uh, one, if you are a startup business, and and even if you are a larger business, uh, large tech business, even you need access to capital. If you don't have enough access to capital, you simply you can't. Yeah, you, 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 you have can't. money. You you really have to have the money. So you know, we raised some money, did a couple of rounds, most uh, friends and family, really, which was what made sense given the the scale of the of the endeavor, and. It was just, you know, it was a real challenge. So we had, you know, we had a staff, we had printing costs. It was a a physical print magazine. So there was always the monthly printing cost and getting that printing cost, you know, we had to pay every month and that was offset against advertising revenues, which, you know, could be like a receivable that was 90 to 120 days or more. I mean, this was just the way it was. So you were always in this really painful cash crunch between your receivables and your payables and and really difficult to raise kind of long-term capital, Hmm. find long-term partnerships. So so we did the best we could for for three years, which is really a lot longer than (laughs) one might've expected. And we had amazing people working with us and working for us. We learned an incredible amount about an, uh, this country, Mexico. Very interesting place. We have a lot of very good friends still there. It was it was really a good place. You know, I started working on Hidden Figures while we were still living in Mexico. And I think one of the things that really offered me was space from the United States. You know, a little bit of space to step back and to, to look a little bit more objectively. You know, if you're you're sort of inside a place, it's hard to see it. When you're outside, you step back, you see it with fresh eyes. You're able to kind of go back in time, I think a little bit better. So it was an absolutely incredible experience. And, and I will always be grateful for that space that it gave me uh, to start writing this book.
0: Yeah, it's the right incubator. So you you were aware from your young days of the scale and variety of technical expertise, white and African American in the Hampton Roads area. Tell me how, when, why your awareness of these remarkable women finally came to the fore and, and, and how that evolved. I'm sure you didn't see the whole hidden figures in your mind's eye right at the beginning. You probably had to find your way there, I would imagine. But how did it get started? That story of African-American women solving the mathematics of the early space program.
1: Yeah. So it was, it was, you know, the inciting incident, as they say, really happened in a conversation between my dad and my, my husband. They were talking about some of the women who my dad had worked with. This was on a visit. We were actually living in Mexico. I would come back to the States to visit my parents for Christmas, ran into one of the former computers who you know? My dad was talking about her, and this this com- conversation ensued between my dad and my husband. And I, it was one of these things where I, I knew these women. I knew a lot of the the names and kind of the stories, some of what they did, the work. But as as one. Does when one grows up in a place, you, you don't really give it your full attention, your full concentration. Oh, dad's at it again. Yeah, yeah, and just I, I've I've heard this and half yeah. listening, and and but an outsider says, "Hey, wait a minute, that's an amazing story. Why haven't I heard that story before?" That's what my husband said, and that was a moment for me to think, "Wow, hmm. well, I don't really know the story. I know I know these bits and pieces, but if I had to say, why were there?" Women, uh, this large group of women, and within that large group, this cohort of black women doing math in the 40s and 50s in segregated Virginia. Well, I, I can't say I do know the story. And yeah. that was that was really the beginning. And it, it started with this story. You know, the person who's really who is the the signature face of the story, of course, is Katherine Johnson. Yeah. And it really did start with an interview sitting down in her living room and and which my mom had known her my parents had known her 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 children you know my mom and katherine johnson's kids went to school together you know they were she was known as this person in the community that i would see when my mom went to sorority meetings or when my dad went to work and this was a chance to see her in another light in the context of the work that she'd done and she was the one who first mentioned the name Dorothy Vaughn and Dorothy Vaughn had already was at the end of her career when my dad had started his career. So he overlapped with Katherine Johnson. He did not overlap with Dorothy Vaughn, but, but knew who she was because she was somebody who made quite, quite an impact. And then Katherine Johnson started telling the story of, of these groups. And then there was the West area computer and it was all black and they were segregated. And, but the work they were doing was the same, you know, really sort of starting to tell this story. Did you get to interview
0: her on that very first visit home when the idea popped up?
1: I did. Yes. Wow. But then, you know, I had, I, I can't even remember how many subsequent interviews with her, with her children, with her husband, um, who was who was now also uh, now deceased, but and she, her narrative, you know, it really was a matter, Kathy, of taking these these distinct narratives. Her narrative of interviewing Christine Darden, her stories, her memories of interviewing all of these different executives who had been at NASA at the time, and mm-hmm. then looking through the incredible archive of oral histories. I mean, yeah, NASA does a really good job of those. It's, it's spectacular. You want to, you want to learn. I mean, I really, I feel like I got a sort of uh maybe a master's degree in aeronautical history, uh-huh. I would say. Um, and, and maybe kind of a half master's degree in aeronautical science, because I had to learn enough of it in order to be able to write about it. But so much of the of what I was able to learn came from the NASA archives, from the the research reports from the 1940s and 50s and and before all of these advances that happened that that resulted in us being able to get on an airplane without thinking about it, that it's going to take off, it's going to fly, it's going to land, it's going to be safe, it's going to be efficient, you're going to get where you're going.
0: And you're main, mainly going to be doing your email and asking for a glass of wine or something. Yeah.
1: Exactly. You don't even think about it. Yeah. All of that happened because these women that I wrote about and their colleagues were doing the numbers for decades. And that history is right there in the document. So so really, it was this, this incredible exercise of weaving together archival information, you know, documents, et cetera oral histories that that had been uh, collected over the years, reminiscences of these people who were still alive. It was such an amazing exercise. I I just loved every single minute of it.
0: I'll bet. Yeah, I I just want to put the extra plug in for the NASA oral histories. You can find them all online. NASA headquarters holds some. Johnson Space Center holds others. But, you know, if you, for example, saw Apollo 13 and loved to know more about what Gene Kranz was like, you could go find his oral history and you read it or or listen to it in some cases. And you'll feel like you're having the same kind of conversation with Gene Kranz that we're having here. They're really, they're really wonderful gems.
1: They're, they're amazing. And the, the people who collected those oral histories took it so seriously, did such a great job, yeah. asked so many questions. It was great. The resource, It's it's a national treasure, certainly. It is a national treasure.
0: So you spent several years, what, about four years getting the book done? From the first interview
1: until I pressed send on the final <laughs> manuscript was six years. Six years.
0: Another author said to me a while back that there are two kinds of writers: that there there are planners, not exactly the words she used, but but there are you know outliners, planners who get it all mapped out and then start to write, and then there are, you know, I think she called them basically wanderers who you have a nugget of the story and see parts of it and you know, start writing and, and find their way step by step. They find the story and how it wants to come together as they're writing. Which are you?
1: I would say it's a combination. And some of that is circumscribed by the fact that it's nonfiction. So you have to have a certain tether to events and to people and, and the things that actually happened, the history. Within that, though, you do get to choose what to show and what story to tell and and what things to emphasize and and what it means to you. So I am a pretty obsessive outliner. And when I look back at the outline of Hidden Figures, the early outline, it hews pretty closely to what ended up being in the book. On a chapter level, however, I tend to wander a little bit more through the chapter and, and Knowing the big picture history, it's not always apparent to me until I start working on a chapter exactly what the story is that's coming out of that chapter. Sometimes it's a little bit more like a photo developing on a chapter level. So I I'd say I'm a combination of both. And maybe I'd be more efficient if I were all one or all the other, but that's 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 just the way it is.
0: Well no even this even the author who shared this with me is Lisa Gardner who's sold some 23 million copies of, of her thrillers. She's a little more she said a little more of the latter but it, you know I think it's always a mix. It certainly was a very much the same kind of mix for me sounds like as you experienced. So the book I mean understandably uh went into film rights pretty quickly after it was published I'm, and that's there's probably wider viewership for the movie, perhaps, than readership, yet I don't know the numbers. But what did the filmmakers, on a, on a percentage rating, I'm, I'm 100% satisfied with this film and how it handles the story that I was telling in my book, down to zero, what score would you give the film Hidden Figures?
1: I It gets pretty high marks. And I have to say, uh, the process of getting to the film was not always smooth. <laughs> <Options>. Never is <laughs> never is, but and and very rare. I'm aware of how rare it is to yeah. have a film made of your book, so that I'm just obviously very grateful for. They actually optioned my book proposal, so I was still writing the book as the the film
0: was being made. Who had you put the proposal to? Did you write this on a Sloan Fellowship out of the MIT?
1: The Sloan, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation funded me in in. Early research, okay, but that was after I'd had a publisher. So, so I guess the process: you start working on a book, you pitch it to agents. I pitched it, found an agent, worked with my agent on the book proposal. How do you find an agent? You go and you, you know, if you search for literary nonfiction agent, you will get any number of websites. <laughs> oh, okay. there, there are lots and lots of agencies. You can look at these people. You can find out what kind of books they represent, what their interests are their job is to find interesting books. So in most cases, they are actively soliciting manuscripts from people. In this case, however, I will say I did that quite a bit. I sent out a lot of queries to agents over the course of the time I was working on the book proposal. And in fact, during that early stage, I got turned down just rejections from the agents. But a couple of them were thoughtful enough to send back feedback and say, "Listen, I think this. There's something here. It's not right for me. Have you considered changing it in this way?" Blah blah blah. So I did that. I also applied for, I think, at least two years national humanities grants, and also was rejected. But they give you feedback, so I would, you know, listen to the feedback, incorporated the feedback got a book proposal together that was interesting enough to an agent, a young agent named Mackenzie Brady Watson, who I think at the time was maybe she was 25. I don't know, but she was interested in science. She was interested in women's stories. She was interested in nonfiction. She really loved it. And she became an early, early champion of, of this project. So she and I worked on the book proposal She took it out to publishers and sold it to HarperCollins. And then she got the proposal into the hands of a book scout. The book scouts are agents, talent agents who look for properties that might make a good film. He got it to the woman who would ultimately become the producer of the film, a woman named Donna Gelati. And that was it. She read it. She loved it. She was very confident in the very beginning. Told me, "Listen, we're going to make a movie. We're going to do it this way. We're going to go to the Oscars. We're going to, you know." She, go oh, wow,
0: on the very first phone call. Yeah. How much did you have to write in that proposal? I I found the the book proposal stage very daunting because I I was confident I could see what this book wants to be and where how it wants to get to, but I it was very early stages of my research. I couldn't yet see how to write it. I think I managed to write what could be a, a, a forward to a sort of set up a couple of pages. But the idea of, well, write a chapter, you know, just defeated me. I couldn't couldn't do it. How much did you have to write?
1: The original book proposal was maybe, I don't know, 60 pages, something like that did you write a sample
0: chapter or?
1: I wrote two sample chapters. I had a complete outline. I had a marketing section. The thing about the book proposal that was so familiar to me is that it is a business plan. That's what I really understood, that you have this idea for a book. You are trying to find a publisher to take this on or, or before that, even an agent to take this on. You have to sell it to them. You have to say, listen, this is the idea. This is why there is a market. These are the people who are going to, to read it. Here's a sample of the product. I'm I'm going to show you what my writing's like. I'm going to get you excited. And hey, I think that I am the person to write this book. This is the reason why. And so I I had written business plans. I understood business plans. And this was another business plan.
0: All that part of it was clear to me and, and pretty easy. It was the, and I think I set myself up for this. I can write you a chapter's worth of text. I'm not at all confident the ultimate chapter one is going to be that chapter. Uh, mm-hmm. I can certainly show you what my writing is like, but I got, I think I caught myself in that do loop, you know, but what if it doesn't turn out that way?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I totally understand that. I totally understand that. It changes. Some of it changed, but some of it's the same. I'm I'm a little surprised in a way when I look back at the old piles of paper printed out of these, you know, marked up manuscripts, how similar the early ideas were to the final idea.
0: Yeah, sometimes that's very fun. So I, you have to indulge me and let me ask you a couple of in the film trivia moments that I've mused over. One scene in the movie that people ask me about all the time, because I had the privilege of knowing John Glenn fairly well, is when the Mercury 7 arrive for the first time in the movie at Langley. And a lot of the workforce is gathered out on the aircraft ramp with, of course, all the white folks on one side behind a rope barrier and all the black folks on another side and a gap, a passageway between them. And the Langley leadership and six of the Mercury astronauts shake a hand or two along the white folk rope line and then just walk right down that aisle into the hangar. John crosses the aisle and shakes hands with several of the the black folks. Do you know if that really happened? It's absolutely true to John Glenn's character. He could he would absolutely be the one to do that if anybody did. So it's it's faithful in that respect,
1: yeah. it it did not happen, <laughs> yeah. yeah. there was there were a lot of things. I'm sure it sounds like you have a couple others, but there were things that, that did not happen, but that were created to dramatize the story yeah. or give some kind of insight into character and that and that was that was one of them. yeah that
0: that's very well done
1: there yes, that was that was not a
0: historical documentary event <laughs> and then uh, more of a fact check one I read somewhere it must have been around the time the film first came out and various people were commenting on it and offering their reviews and somewhere in that mass of media, I read something that said, you know the bathrooms when the Kevin costner, character finally learns that poor Catherine's having to slog, you know, half a mile through the rain and blah 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 just to go to the bathroom. Under the press of of time to get this critical mission launched, she goes bananas and takes out a sledgehammer which somehow magically is in the office spaces and smashes the white's only sign off the bathroom. This article said, well, actually on the Langley campus at the time that the early mercury work was done, the bathrooms were no longer segregated on the campus. So that was another bit of artifice in the movie. Do you know which of those versions is right?
1: Yeah. In fact, the segregation was abolished when the NACA became NASA. So 1957, October 1957 was Sputnik. By October 1958, the NACA had become NASA and they disbanded the segregated computing pools and, and got rid of the segregation. So NASA essentially started life as an agency that that did not technically, anyway, have that vestige of segregation.
0: At least on paper, not that the mindsets and attitudes exactly. of, of either the yes. black folk or the white folk would change just when they drove through the gate.
1: Exactly, exactly. But, you know, tried to sweep out that old way of doing things. So that is correct in the it, there is a conflation in that the John Glenn episodes that that start, you know, in the 1960 1961 1962 by that time the agency had become NASA and that segregation had been abolished.
0: So it's a conflation of timelines. Yeah. I suspected that, but it certainly I thought the movie for someone like me with my you know very suburban white background, you know we had some African American neighbors but not many and I I remember the probably 12 or 13 when I realized that, you know, my neighbors across the street, there's a crew of African-Americans that were doing, you know, house cleaning in the neighborhood. Uh, they worked at, at our home and I was like best friends with the young daughter, adored her. The other family wouldn't let them come in their front door. Things like that I couldn't understand and appalled me. So I, I valued the movie for giving me, at least me, a richer sense of how how wonderfully healthy, intact that African-American community was at the time, the families were at the time, the quality and character of the people, their intelligence, their professionalism, and heightening, for me, heightening that movie helped show all the more clearly how idiotic it was to not be able to see and fully tap the talents of these amazing people through all of those years.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, really one of the things, Kathy, for me that was super important was to show an internal view of this black community, because Mm -hmm. that's, that's really the view that I grew up with, even though I grew up, segregation had been abolished, I went to integrated schools, etc, etc. But I really, I I knew that these, these women, just like my parents, they'd gone to black colleges, you know, we went to a black church, there's an immersiveness to this world, this black world where, you know, any anything that you might imagine and any aspiration that you might imagine, any dream that you might imagine that that was existing anywhere else in the United States also existed with these women. And so that showing that world as being very complete was one of the things that was very important to me. So
0: yeah, I, I really treasured that part of the movie personally. Let's shift gears a little bit because we're getting close to time here. You are still, I gather quite an intrepid traveler, wondering what your favorite destination, if you have a favorite destination that you like to go back to and, and what the top one or two things on your bucket list are.
1: Well, you know, like everyone else, I uh, haven't done a whole lot of traveling since the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> <Well>, yes, <ending. laughs>
0: we've all been on pause. Okay.
1: Yeah, a little bit. And, and before that, the last trip that I took was to Mexico, you know, to visit some friends in Mexico. So hoping that that over the next little stretch here, a new project that just has has just started that might take me to Europe. So I'm hoping there's a a couple of trips there that I I think eventually will happen. You know, I love ruins. I'm super interested in ruins. And, uh, you know, Mexico has a lot of ruins. I've been to Angkor Wat and Cambodia. It's just something about this idea of the course of empire, you know what I mean? That every every civilization has a life cycle, and then you see the end of it. Pompeii, I've been to Pompeii. It's, it's something that's really interesting. So what I really want to do, I want to see the Roman ruins in North Africa. I'm very interested. Oh wow, and Tunisia and Algeria and Libya. Like I'm, I would love to do a tour of the African side of the Mediterranean and the
0: Roman ruins that are there. That's that's one of my bucket list. Oh wow. Let let me know when you're planning that one. I might have to tag along.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's gonna be pretty interesting. So yeah. we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. That's uh that's after my son is a little older and after my book is a little dunner.
0: <laughs> so what book are you working on now?
1: I'm working on a book. It's it's another nonfiction book, mid-century, mid-20th century, which is my fascination, the 20th century, the American century. And this book is related to Hidden Figures. And as I was doing the research for Hidden Figures, uh, one of the great joys was to just transport yourself back to 1943 or 38 or 49 or or whatever it was, and read the newspapers and see the documents and to a certain extent, really start living in that era again and be immersed in that era and the people and the things and read the newspaper and say, wow, that person's amazing. How come... I, I don't really know about them. Why isn't there a book about this person? So I, I keep a file of things I would write about if I had another chance. So uh, the book that I'm I'm working on now, because fortunately uh, I'm very grateful to have a the chance to write another book, has to do with Baltimore. And the, the same way Hidden Figures really focused on this group of Black professionals who were scientists, this one focuses on entrepreneurs, business people which ah. I, I still consider my first business my first work identity. You know, I still have a very strong yeah. work identity as a business person and so this this is really looking in, in a very similar way with similar themes of social mobility and race and class and economics and professional identity you know this this American thing of getting identity through your work it's looking at a lot of those same things, except with a group of Black business people and based in Baltimore.
0: Wow. That reminds me, I can't remember for sure if any of the people figured in this book are from Baltimore. Have you seen, it's many years old, Sir Harold Evans wrote a coffee table format book called The Innovators? No. Uh, It's one of my absolutely favorite books. It's right on the theme you're talking about. These are not these are innovators at scale, but it continues to affect our lives that we've kind of never heard about, like the woman who created the home perm kit, who was black, uh, and this is was revolutionary because it was you know not viewed as hygienic to do hair coloring. Everyone had to go to a salon that you know had all sorts of proper equipment and sanitation, and the notion that you could do it at home yourself in, in a sanitary way was remarkable. The invention of the bra, as we know it had to be invented. So the bringing together of, in some cases, existing elements and capabilities, but in a form or in a way or for a purpose that no one had conceived before. And it's innovative in his parlance rather than inventing because a lot of the building blocks existed, but no one had recognized the opportunity, the use, the market. So connecting the blocks together in a different way because there is an opportunity, a market to be seized is the innovation part. But fascinating profiles, a couple dozen people, really none of whom I had ever heard of before. Oh, I'm going to look it up. Thank you for the tip. I always (laughs) look for good books. Might find some
1: other names to go on your list. You just never know where the inspiration comes from.
0: Yeah. So I know you talk to countless audiences and young people. And of course, your hidden figures, movie and book have you inspired many, many, many young people. I'm interested in what your top couple of three points of advice are to the 20-somethings that you meet about life or career or the universe or everything.
1: Well, I would say a couple of things, some of which came out of my experience talking with these women who really were and became mentors and teachers and people whose, whose lives obviously worth emulating. And some of it just my own experience, but I would say one is don't take no for an answer. That was something that was certainly true of the women who over time, you know, particularly these four women that I wrote about in the book, that, that was just true. I mean, anytime the door closed, they just knocked on the door again. Or pried it open. <laughs> or pried it open, put their foot in the door to keep it from closing uh, that was something that was a absolutely true, and I think that's an incredible lesson. Don't take no for an answer. I think a corollary to that is make failure your friend, ah. and especially when you're young, There's I and, and especially if you are a type A, if you're success-oriented, if you're ambitious, whatever. I think there's, there's a stigma that still attaches to failure as opposed to kind of embracing it and dismantling it and and looking at it and then going on to the next thing. Failure is a really good teacher. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a hard, harsh, it's a teacher. tough teacher. It's a tough, tough teacher, but you get some of your best lessons from failing and having to face that having to face it. That's, that's hard, but that is a good thing. And sometimes it, it brings you to the thing that you're supposed to do. If, if our newspaper business, we hadn't had to close it, then maybe I'd never, be doing this with hidden figures, which I consider to be the the best work of my life. So you know you have to you have to really understand the failures for the the teaching that they give you and have the guts because it does take guts because it hurts to look in the mirror like that. but have have that fortitude to look at it and accept it
0: and thank it for what it's it's giving you and the integrity to really take a board. Yeah, okay, that was me, right Got it.
1: Yeah, that's hard. It's hard. That's hard. It's no one's saying that's easy, but it's valuable. Um, And then I'd say, you know, listen, take the long view. I think another thing when you're 20 years old, you think that you're going to be successful instantly. You're going to be doing this, you know, whatever, move to the top immediately. You're going to get to whatever the road is in the most direct way possible. Listen, you know, I'm on my like fourth career or something here. (laughs) The road has been anything but straight, but every single thing that I've done along the way has helped me and I I can draw on today. So it's like, hey, maybe it's not a detour. Maybe you needed to take that U-turn because that's the road that's going to get you where you need to go. I think that's, and that that's also something that it's, it's, the older you get, the easier it gets to see that when you're 18 or 20 or 22 and right out of college, it is admittedly a very difficult thing. But I, I think it's sort of probably the norm for most of us these days. Nobody gets a job and stays in the same job for, for 40 years, the way they might have done in you know
0: 1950 or something. Right. But it's pretty natural to feel, to start to believe that go fast, straight line stuff when so many people around you are saying, "You, know, what do you want to be? Where are you going to go? What's your plan? I've said several times on this podcast, I told people that my favorite adage learned in my days at the astronaut office, plans are nothing, but planning is everything. Well said. It's not going to go the way you planned, sweetheart. It's just not. Well said.
1: You know what? I'm going to add that one to my list, Kathy, of things, <laughs> wise <laughs> wisdom to dispense when somebody asks, me must tell them that somebody very wise said that to me and uh, I'll repeat it. So thank you for that. Someone very experienced by virtue
0: of her own failures. But
1: there there you go. That's that's how you get there. That's how you get
0: there. Well, we've gotten to the end of our time, unfortunately, but it's been wonderful chatting with you. Hope we can do some more of this in the future and maybe find some time on the margins of our next Terra Alpha Investments meeting to spend a little more time together. A pleasure talking with you.
1: I would love that. Thank you. And I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. Margot Lee Shetterly, thank you so much. Thank you, Kathy.
0: Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to KathysullivanExplores.com.